missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hi. And Jason. Hello. If you're listening to this on the day of release, you probably noticed we've moved to Wednesdays, which will now be our normal release day. And if you're not listening to this on the day of release, why not hit whatever button it is that lets you subscribe or follow this show so you won't have to worry about missing an episode in the future? And while you're doing that, you should probably rate and review us. It really helps us break through the noise of the podcasting world and reach new audiences. Tonight, we're talking about Sharkanos and Dynamic Dinos. In the second half, all three of us will be talking to the legendary Dr. Lee Berger. And I get it. That's probably the reason why you're here. But I promise the first half is really good, too. So, before we get to Lee... The news. Sometimes science, or at least the headlines of scientific articles, are indistinguishable from the tagline of a bad action movie. As of this recording, the particular story we're talking about is not heading directly to your favorite streaming service, but I'm assuming that will eventually be the case. About 15 miles off the coast of the Solomon Islands... Vangunu Island, the Kavachi volcano, has been erupting for a few months. You can even see the discolorations of the water on satellite images, which is a little bit unsettling. And this happens pretty often in the ocean. There's lots of underwater volcanoes that are really active in this area. But what makes this unique is that a team of researchers were able to drop a probe in its crater during a period of inactivity in 2015, which allowed them to observe a bunch of sea life able to withstand the incredibly harsh conditions that were created by this underwater volcano. And they included rays, hammerhead sharks, and Ted Cruz. I mean, gelatinous fish, sorry. Um, so... What do we what do we think about this this uh, underwater menagerie of very heat tolerant animals? I think it's amazing that they can live in this environment because it's highly acidic, hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Normally, you kind of think like this is inhospitable territory, and yet life is thriving down there. And then I also googled gelatinous animals, and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. kind of. There's like some scary ones in there. Yeah. I don't like watching C-SPAN either. (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty cool. A pretty cool discovery. It immediately sort of reminds me of the, you know, origin of life on this planet discussions and where did life evolve first? Being in these deep sea trenches in very extreme heat environments lots of acidity. What was cool to me was that now we're talking about multicellular organisms, ones that have evolved for you know hundreds of millions of years, still being able to live there. Here's what I worry about, though. Imagine a Sharknado from the Sharkano population. <gasps> that just seems like the end of the world yeah, right there. It's over. So if you look at the AV Club's take on this, um, they have an artist's rendition of Shark. NATO and it kind of combines yeah. Sharkano and Sharknado. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sharknado. It's really well done too. Like some of the greatest photorealistic animation I've, I've ever seen. It's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Honestly, like a lot of the reporting around this is kind of taking the sci-fi take rather right. than actually just reporting that a volcano is erupting because, you know, the we discovered the, well, a team re- discovered there were fish in this crater like in 2015 so seven years ago and the only news right now unless i'm not reading it correctly is that the volcano's erupting right it's not like the volcano's erupting and deploying these fish to take over atlantis right exactly so i think the point here is that the reason they were able in 2015 to find animals living in this area is because the volcano was not erupting it just randomly serendipitously they were able to be there at the time Mm -hmm. when this wasn't erupting but it's continually erupting it's been continually erupting for a long time since 1939 right so it's not anything new 
Yeah. It's just the sci-fi take on it is what is going to catch a headline. And, it, yeah. you know, no headline is a bad headline when it comes to getting science out there, as long as there's someone who can correct the misinformation. Sure. Right? Like us. And that's our job. So that's right. uh, I'm going to stand here right now and say that as far as I can tell, and I am not an atmospheric scientist by any stretch, but my understanding is that it is not possible for a Sharknado to actually happen. So we don't need to worry too much about the Sharkano becoming the origin site for a Sharknado. Now, you didn't talk with any definites yeah. in that statement. That's correct. Right, right, right. Yes, because, again, I am not an atmospheric scientist. So what you're saying is there's a chance. Well, That's climate right. change makes everything change makes everything possible exactly yeah so there we go you talked about the the beginning of the evolution of life jason and i think you're forgetting one of the key concepts of experimental evolutionary biology and that is that life finds a way it's true it's true or or this is mother mother earth just saying i brought you into this world and damn it i can take you out of this world with sharks with heat resistant sharks right i I mean one thing that it does tell us right is that uh you can find these species in extreme conditions so maybe they will be resistant to rapid changes in their environments like yeah maybe better chance of surviving human induced changes to the ocean chemistry so when you put this together with what we talked about last time about these hidden forests, right, in the Chinese yeah. sinkholes, we've got a lot oh, no. of potential here for the sustainability of life on this planet, even when <laughs> humans make it inhabitable for most of the species on this planet. I was going to say, eventually, the entire ocean is going to be the temperature of this crater. So we can uh, we can make sure that there's going to be hammerhead sharks well into the future that uh, will eventually take over the earth and gelatinous day. animals. Don't forget those. Well, there's one in the Senate already. Yeah. I'm never going to stop making that joke. That's okay. I don't mean to get all political on the Science Night podcast, but Ted Cruz is not a handsome man. There, I said it. I see that <laughs> joke, and I will. Um, I'll raise you. How can we rebuild the Earth if we don't have a hammerhead shark? Oh, right? that's. Perfect. You want to know something, Steffi and Jason? There's one thing I found out in my lauded career as a science communicator. People love dinosaurs. Every time there is a new discovery, it immediately makes international headlines. And if you don't want to take my word for it, just ask former guest Dr. Casey Holliday. They are so well reported that we usually end up letting them go on this portion of the show in favor of less covered or my favorite, stranger stories. Basically, we ask ourselves, is this story going to give Steffi nightmares? And dinosaurs just usually don't check off that box. They don't. However, a team led by Jasmina Wyman of the California Institute of Technology has recently published an article about this topic that I have thought a lot about. And... I've even written about it for a biology class at Dartmouth College. So I'm basically an expert, Ryan Kelsbeek. You remember that paper. I know you're listening. Basically, for as long as we've known that dinosaurs existed, we thought of them as giant lizards, which is mostly true. And with that, we assumed their bodies worked like living species of lizards that are you know, currently living also function. They have a slow metabolism and no ability to internally warm their body, which we would call cold-blooded. That may not be the case. It turns out that the fossils of certain dino species point towards them having the traits we would expect from a warm-blooded species, changing our understanding of how this adaptation evolved in the ancestor of dinosaurs. What do we think about the dynamic metabolism of dinosaurs? It's a cool story, very cool story, because there has been evidence over the last probably 20 years now that has suggested that at least some dinosaurs were endothermic, so warm-blooded. You know, conventional wisdom was that they were cold-blooded and ectotherms, right? And little pieces of information would come out in the news, in the science stories, suggesting that maybe that story wasn't entirely correct. This new study basically sets... Um, the ancestral state as warm-blooded and that any of the dinosaurs that in fact and their relatives later right that are cold-blooded and require 
the ability to, say, warm up their blood by basking in the sun, warm up their bodies, rather, to uh, bask in the sun, by basking in the sun and then allowing themselves to be able to have metabolic reactions, <laughs> that story now has has a starting point. And so that story means that, uh, you know, the ancestral state was warm-blooded and it looks like several lines of dinosaurs evolved to become cold-blooded. That's a pretty cool story, but it's very early in this. There's been a single paper that has sort of tied this together, and that's what makes this exciting, but it also makes it pretty tenuous. You know, like I said before, we're opening a door that leads to a cracked window into a potentially sweaty dinosaur. <laughs> and sometimes that's all you need to start having more articles and uh, more money pushed in this direction. Because um, I think, like, by just kind of defaulting right away to their lizards and lizards that we see now are cold-blooded means, like, well, you're not going to get anything funded that's going to have you try and do this thought experiment to prove otherwise. So, yeah, I think I think that's the exciting thing. I... I just like dinosaurs. There, I said it. Yeah. I'm I, one of the people. I totally do, too. I didn't know there was a spectrum. Um, and that was pretty fascinating to, to read about that. And also how that maybe kind of works into mass extinct, extinction events. Mm -hmm. So previously suggested that warm-bloodedness helped prehistoric birds and mammals adapt during the mass extinction event. But then this evidence shows that maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's other traits like body size that could be key to a survivor's success. And so I thought that aspect was pretty interesting, too. I agree with you. What I found a little unsatisfying about that argument, though, was that if the ancestral state is warm-bloodedness and several of these lines of dinosaurs evolved cold-blooded, so ectothermy, to me, that is not refuted by the hypothesis here that warm-blooded animals being warm-blooded allowed them to survive the KT boundary, right? The Cretaceous tertiary boundary here, this mass extinction event about 65 million years ago. If anything, it actually reinforces that argument. Now, granted, this is kind of the problem with paleontology when it comes to the scientific method, because paleontology is a historical science and many of the experimental sciences are ahistorical, right? Or at least they're operating in an ahistorical environment. What I mean by that is that they're testing hypotheses in controlled, you know, environments and they can manipulate variables. When it comes to the fossil record, we are completely dependent on the ability to find them, first of all, and make yeah. sense of them, second of all. And so we don't test hypotheses in exactly the same way in paleontology as we do in um, for example, fusion work, right? Or even mm -hmm. the experimental stuff that we do in my lab with regard to um, to bone and muscle mechanics. You can manipulate variables in a very particular way and control those experiments that you can't do that in the Badlands, right? You can't do that while you're pulling, yeah. <laughs> pulling fossils out of, you know, 70 million year old rock. Yeah. Well, you can use more advanced techniques, measurement techniques and things like that. And models, right. right? So that's that's those are the keys that you have. Right, absolutely. And that's what this paper is actually suggesting, right? There's a whole new suite yep. of biomolecules that they're able to identify in fossil bone, fossil shell, um, living bone as well, um, or bone from living animals that's not fossilized. So, for example, a fossil femur, a thigh bone, is not bone anymore. It is rock. So all of the um, inorganic material that was in the living bone is now replaced with rock so it's still inorganic but it's not bone material anymore it's not the hydroxyapatite crystals that we're expecting to see there surrounded by collagen instead it's completely replaced with rock but the biomolecules stay behind and so they can still you know examine the concentrations of particular molecules that are related to the metabolic rates of animals and sort of generate hypotheses about whether or not an, a given animal was endothermic or ectothermic. But again, that is um, a, a suite of tools that you can use to test hypotheses at a particular specific instance, but you can't really test big grandiose hypotheses in the same way because, you know, you're not generating the, the specimens. You are, mm -hmm. you are completely dependent on the discovery of those specimens. Now you talked about living 
living specimen bones. Is, does this explain why you have been booking passage from harbors in Costa Rica out into the Pacific Ocean so often lately? You know, asking for a friend. This was not supposed to come out on the podcast, James. <laughs> the amount of times I've used Jurassic Park quotes in a very serious manner during meetings, it's just fabulous and I love it and I'm never you know, going to stop. It's because I use practical effects. It still holds up. <laughs> not like those new ones. We're not quoting the new ones, you notice. Yeah. That's a good point. Although, one of the things that drove me crazy during the Winter Olympics when they were doing anything they could to make uh, people care about this new Jurassic World movie that's apparently coming out is they had uh, dinosaurs in the snow and it was like that would they would they would fall over and die out if they were warm they're warm blooded but they were using the species that they were talking about that had uh, adapted to cold to have a cold blooded so they had like stegosaurus and triceratops triceratopses (laughs) snowboarding (laughs) i was like oh no right which we also know not possible i mean seriously t-rex's arms were not long enough to snowboard and maintain balance that tail would be in the way it's exactly and I, i don't think a quadruped would do very good on like the half pipe so like a t uh a triceratops is out yeah, maybe, maybe. Although I do have this vision in my head of a whole bunch of T-Rexes, you know, skiing down the slopes and then oh, meeting around a big giant hearth to group feed um, on hot chocolate. With cute little knit hats. Yeah. Pompons. Like they would have to keep their arms out of the way. That's because, you know, that's why their arms are short. If you listen that's back right. to a previous episode. Right. That's what we talked about, right? T-Rex arms are short because they are group eating and they don't want to bite their, frenzy. their friends' fingers. Right, feeding frenzies. So I imagine the feeding frenzy after a long day on the slopes with hot chocolate involved yeah, was a big Would one. Would they have to get like the self-stirring uh, mugs for hot cocoa? Because like, how are they going to stir when they dump the Swiss Miss in? That, that's what I've always asked. That's I suspect thing? they're using troughs, not... Not mugs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense. And right. I mean, it's just a practical sense, yeah. right? That's true. I mean, at least we're thinking about this in a practical way. Yeah, right, right. I want to add one more thing to the docket. A bit of a surprise article. I know oh. I said we were only going to do two news stories because this was going to be a longer episode. But I saw a headline and it just snatched my attention away. According to the Daily Express, a UK tabloid. The Hot Sheets. Where you get all your science news. Yeah, exactly. And, well, you know, those, science, those scientists, they are stunned on the discovery of a new species of human in an African cave. Now, I've always loved the story of Homo naledi and the rising star cave system in South Africa. I just wish we could get the news of this find from a more reliable source than a UK-based tabloid. I know someone. Who's that? Who do you know? I mean, I know him um, because we've run in similar circles in the past, you know, but uh, maybe we could reach out to Lee Berger. You guys heard of that guy? Do you think he's free? He follows you on Twitter, doesn't he? He does follow me on Twitter, (laughs) much to his chagrin, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, why don't all three of us go and knock on his door in South Africa right now? Hop on a plane. That sounds like a good idea. We'll be right back with our conversation with Professor Lee Berger after a message from a podcast that I think you'll enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Today is an exciting day. Today we get to welcome our friend, Professor Lee Berger, to the podcast. Professor Berger is sort of a personal hero of mine in many ways. The very first paper I ever published was actually a paper that disagreed with some things that uh, Professor Berger had said. And when I spoke to him about it at a conference, he was the most gracious individual I had ever met. And I appreciated that a whole lot. Um, It left an indelible sort of print 
on my academic career, and uh, I'm appreciative of it. So it's very exciting that we get to welcome him to the podcast today. Professor Berger is a National Geographic Explorer at Large. He is the Philip Tobias Chair in Paleoanthropology at the University of Witzwatersrand, and he is the Director of the Center for the Exploration of the Deep Human Journey, also at the University of Witz. It is really exciting to have you here, Lee. Thank you for coming on to the podcast tonight. Uh, thanks a lot, Jason. And uh, we'll talk about that paper a little bit later. Uh, have a discussion <laughs> about those results. Now that you've had a to. few years to uh, work over that. That's right. I'll have to go back and read it really quickly. So uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and do that uh, maybe at another time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So uh, it's excellent to have you here today, um, especially because just last time on our podcast, we were having a, a discussion about open science. And we're going to get to that today uh, because you were immediately brought up as someone who could speak to the importance of open science in a very different field than what we were talking about. We were talking about in the context of plant identification primarily in the context of the, the iNaturalist phone app uh, that allows uh, citizen scientists to participate in the collection of a whole lot of biodiversity data. And, uh, and it's geocached and really well suited for big data analysis. And it's exciting. And you've been pushing the envelope here in anthropology as well. So before we get to that discussion, how are things in Johannesburg? I always hate to say this in the middle. Well, it hopefully towards the terminus of a pandemic, but it's actually spectacular here. We had a, we had a great COVID and of course, South Africa had its rough times here, but as a science, we had a great COVID and me personally, because I was kind of in this rut of success. Yeah. Rut of success, right? <laughs> we can talk about your rut of success. <laughs> yeah. But I, let me pull that out because there is such a thing. And I've been through it now twice. First with Sadiba back in 2008, you know, we had this discovery, these skeletons of a new species, 2 million years old. We had, you know, three special editions of science. Mm -hmm. My partnerships and my collaborations went from a, a pool of one, me, to, you know, 140 scientists over, over a period of, of four or five years living the scientific dream. And then, you know, realized I hadn't been exploring. Then Homo Naledi comes along because we went back out in the field and mm -hmm. it's now seems even better than that. And, you know, kept going. And, and I built this exploration program that was probably the most awful design you could ever build for a pandemic that anyone had ever created. It was designed to fly in the very best and brightest scientists from all over the world, and they'd study your fossils. I had exploration teams out going underground into deep remote places that were moist and hot and where they were risking their lives and crawling mm -hmm. and pulling each other through in contact with each other, you know, a half a meter apart. My preparation labs were these large open spaces, poorly ventilated that, you know, everyone's working in. I mean, it was awful. Literally, the pandemic was the shocking eye opener of the rut that we had gotten into of doing everything in this one way. And so when it hit, I suddenly found myself looking at this and going, this is this is a mess. And and I really did realize I think it, at the time uh, that this was not going to be a three-month endeavor. Um, right. And so as it started rolling up back in February of 2020, I started dispersing my people out. And I, I turned my field school labs because I knew that the there probably weren't going to be any field schools in the near future into remote preparation huts and filled them with technology so my preparators could be alone, but we could communicate with them. I started creating technology and scanning in place so that we could communicate with scientists. And then I realized, you know, but my explorers are basically doing nothing. They cannot mm -hmm. work in the way that, that I had. And, and that led me to say, well, what can I do? And there'd been this site sitting right next to rising star, 250 meters away, a, a, a cave site that was just too dangerous to work. We're going to talk about Rising Star in just a little bit, because that's a fantastic story. Not to cut you off, Lee, uh, but I want to make sure that our listeners know Rising Star is an incredible find, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit here. But this is a site that's adjacent to that, because you couldn't do the work in this cave site. So 
please. Continue. I've got something better for you. And then rise and shine. No, I'm kidding. Um, the, uh, <laughs> you heard it here folks. first, folks. <laughs> 250 <laughs> meters away was this cave site that had this two teeth in a, in a part of a mandible that we'd found. But it was the worst conditions to work in. It was... It had been blasted and mined, and the ceiling looked like it was going to collapse, and we couldn't work there. And so I looked around and said, okay, let's figure out a way to change the paradigm and work a site I would actually probably never work. And so instead of working in the cave like we normally would, I designed a, a situation to pull everything from the cave to the surface and rebuild the cave on the surface. And mm. because we uh, people were starving to death here in South Africa, there were no jobs. I mm -hmm. employed dozens of people. I then engaged all these young early career scientists that lived in South Africa, these South African scientists, who normally in the system that I'd built previously on the two previous projects, would always kind of be on the periphery because when you're bringing in the big dogs of science and, you know, these early career kind of often get on the edge of the project because you have these big stars of science. And I put them right in the front and center as mm -hmm. principal investigators, lead scientists, lead geologists, everything filling this. And we went back into the field. We were back in the field full time as if nothing had happened by October of 2020. And of course, as soon as we got in there and started pulling this thing out, we hit this extraordinary hominid discovery. I mean, a super rich site that's at least as rich as Malapa and Sadiba were, and maybe richer and also extraordinarily odd and different. And the system worked great. And suddenly we had a whole new plan. Mm -hmm. in a whole new way. And that has led us to opening up new sites. So right now we're back in the field with major teams being led by people like Dr. Kanelwe Moliapane at Gladysville, reopening that site that I effectively failed at for 17 years. And, and Toboho Machabella from the University of Johannesburg at the Lafika Lenoka Tufa site. And they're now leading these projects. And that's all because of COVID. So we're actually doing more than we ever did before. That is really fantastic. You mentioned early career researchers often get pushed to the periphery, and you're actually well known for bringing them right into the mix and making sure that they don't get pushed to the periphery. So when you say that they're often pushed to the periphery, that's probably, you know, magnified in a, in a different context, right? In your, in your context, it's much less uh, of an issue, I would imagine. And so to point it out, I think is important. This is really exciting to hear about. Why don't you take us actually back to September of 2013? You started talking about Rising Star, which is a, an underground cave system that was well known, but uh, the particular part of the cave that was discovered in September of 2013 was new and an incredible find. Why don't you tell us about that story? To actually start that September 2013 story, I have to take you about six weeks before that. We had been locked out of working at Malapa. And Malapa had been this rut of success. I mean, all the papers you could want, you know, papers in nature and science and all the big high-profile uh, journals and lots of collaborators, just living scientific dream. And then I had to build a structure over it to protect it and to, so that we could continue to work because we'd found organic remains. I had to protect those as we were working, you know, two million-year-old organic remains. And it locked me out of the field. And because the way that we'd built this program with both early career scientists and sort of efficiency model of open access mm -hmm. around Sadiba meant we were caught up with all the science. And so literally I went from busy, busy, busy to nothing. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, well, what can I do for this? It's my mini pandemic of, you know, inactivity. And, mm -hmm. and so I was saying, what could I do? And I had this map that had led to the discovery of Sadiba, which had been created from Google Earth, you know, an open access satellite software and things that I quit exploring literally the day that we discovered Sadiba when Matthew, my nine-year-old son said, you know, dad, I found a fossil. And mm -hmm. because Sadiba had been like the biggest discovery of a career, the, the kind of thing that you dream about when you're sitting in Anthro 101, watching pictures of Lucy and all that, you know, multiple skeletons and all of those things. I was sitting there and going, well, what couldn't I do? And I had this great map and I said, but I don't want to walk over the surface because that's what I'd done back in 2008 to look mm -hmm. for these sites. So I decided to go underground. 
because every one of the pins I had was basically the doorway or gateway into an underground cave system. And those had never been explored, largely because of a preconception that the stuff underground was going to be young and these were still forming caves and that they wouldn't mm. be of value. And so I put together a uh, brought in an old uh, graduate student of mine that was looking for work, bought a mer- motorcycle to the university, which is a miracle unto itself, sent him out there, <laughs> start looking at these underground caves. He came back and he said he wasn't able to go into most of them. So we enlisted these two amateurs, Steve Tucker and Rick Hunter, showed him what we were looking for, sent him off with this map. And five weeks after that, I had a, my doorbell ring and Steve Tucker opened up his laptop and showed me pictures after he'd just come out of this cave of what looked like an ancient hominid. But unlike every other situation that we'd seen here in South Africa, it was a mandible and bones just lying on the floor of a cave. That shouldn't happen. And I made a call to National Geographic and said, you know, if you're ever going to believe in me, believe in me right now, which is just, you know, explore a talk for I need money. And they said, (laughs) yes, but don't spend too much. And I then suddenly realized I'd risked the reputation, my own reputation in that on a photograph, you know, from admittedly amateur cavers in a place that as they described it was 30 plus meters below the ground. But to get to that, you had to go, you know, 150 meters into a cave and then down through a chute that was 12 meters long. What is that in feet? 40, 40 something feet and uh, narrow to about seven and a half inches, this vertical pipe. Jeez. Get in. So I knew I was never going to get into there. You know, and, you know, my ego wouldn't fit into that, much less, <laughs> you know, my body. And so I put a Facebook ad out. I remember this Facebook ad, actually. I remember it because I thought, whoa, what is going on? This, <laughs> this seemed really exciting because, you know, you didn't see this kind of stuff on Facebook at this point, at this time, right? <laughs> you didn't see a lot of people saying, hey, I've got a research position open. Um, and so I remember seeing this post. And so please continue. I needed skinny scientists who were willing to risk their lives to go into an extreme situation in South Africa four weeks from today. And I'm not going to pay you, but I'll put you up and you'll be on research and it's going to be exciting. I promise I, I, well, I almost promise I'll try not to kill you, uh, but I have no idea, (laughs) you know, what's down there and you have to have all these skills. And, and then I had this, you know, explosion of applicants and mm-hmm. um i selected the six most qualified that just happened to be women and uh, a month later we launched the rising star expedition and within a week we realized that we were into this extraordinary thing but part of what we did also which nowadays seems very open i mean two thirds 2013 isn't that long ago, but there have been paradigm shifts in the way that we do things, I think, since mm-hmm. then, was that, you know, we opened this up to the world. We tweeted it. We were on social media. We had live cameras there letting everyone see. And that was terrifying at the time. Firstly, I didn't know if it was going to fail. I didn't know if these things were going to really be important. And we did it in front of a million plus people eventually as we as we did that. But you know, by the end of the week, I guess if people have heard this story before, we had the, we knew we were sitting on what was likely uh, the richest fossil hominid site ever discovered, mm-hmm. um, with not just one hominid in it, but multiple. And by the end of that little three and a half week, four week expedition, we discovered more hominid fossils than in the entire history of the search for human origins in Southern Africa in the previous hundred years. And, and it was a new species. You know, which we announced in an open access journal, eLife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we eventually dated it. We announced it before we dated it. And I think for good reasons. And then uh, eventually dated it. When we announced it, by the way, the whole, the people who didn't like what we were saying said, you know, it's a primitive Homo erectus. It's millions of years old. It's, they told mm-hmm. us everything it was going to be, um, except what it actually was, which was a primitive hominid living at a quarter of a million years ago at the exact moment when we thought the archaeological evidence here in Southern Africa was predicting the rise of modern humans. Such an awesome story. I, you know, I remember very vividly my sort of world changing because I had already sort of left the field of paleoanthropology by this point anyway, but I've always been 
interested in science communication and I've always done science outreach. And this was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I thought you were nuts. I really thought you were nuts <laughs> in the best way though, right? I mean, you had no idea what you were going to find, but it was there. It was like watching the opening of Al Capone's vault, except that in this case, <laughs> you had an inkling that there was actually going to be treasure buried in this cave, right? But you still didn't know what it was going to be. And to me, that was sort of um, what was really exciting. It just had uh, this, it had me on the edge of my seat. And I think it captivated a lot of people's imagination about what it means to do science. So what I want to talk to you about now is what did you do after? You had mentioned that you found this wealth of material and you had put together quite the team to pull it out of the cave. But what you did next is almost as impressive as this underground astronaut team, as they're called. I, I believe that's correct, right? Underground astronauts? Yeah, and boy, I've got hell for that name from so many people. I blurted it out in the middle of one of these interviews <laughs> because I you know, I was watching these black and white images because believe it yeah. or not, the security cameras didn't have enough light down in those resources. So they were all infrared. So was, I said, you know, it's like watching a spacewalk. These scientists are like, they're like astronauts, but underground astronauts. And you cannot imagine the hate mail I've got for that. <laughs> They're Terranauts. Oh. They're Troglonauts. They're not astronauts. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but you still captured the the point. You, you captured the imagination of the American public, uh, not just the American public, but you know the public of the world. And you tagged it, right? It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Even on my best days, I make mistakes, <laughs> and so you know it's perfectly understandable that uh, somebody who's makes many less mistakes than I do. Makes a mistake. <laughs> no, no. I don't even think it's a mistake. I think it's beautiful. And I will always call them underground astronauts. Me too. One of the questions I've always wanted to ask as you kind of like overseeing this ex excavation from the surface, because, you know, you and I share a similar body size uh, and um, going down into those caves would result in, in, a, in like a Winnie the Pooh situation. The idea that you're seeing this incredible sight from a camera and you're like, oh, this is going to change so many things. But then the thought of, oh no, these have to make their way through all of these things to get back to the surface. What was that time when you know that the fossils are on their way up, but not there yet. What was that like? You've actually asked two questions here. Okay. One of them is you actually secretly asked, why didn't I open up the cave and go in there? You know, <laughs> so I could get in there. And the, and the second one is an emotive one. And, and that the first one is because it's actually been a thrill to me to watch us solve the reason that I don't need to be there. I don't need, there are brilliant people who can get there, but we have applied some of the highest tech technology in the world to visualize this, to get in there, and we've left it for the next generation of scientists. We've left thousands of Homo naledi bones, thousands of them in the cave, and you're going to hear about, by the end of this year, some extraordinary discoveries. I mean, the best is yet to come. And we've left them there, and that's the way it should be. Technology is going to change. It gets better. And just because I'm there doesn't mean I should destroy something that's hundreds of thousands of years old to get, let my ego be the, the person who scrapes a trowel. The second is getting it out of there. Absolutely freaking terrified. <laughs> Every time. Because not only, you know, you literally, these underground astronauts and explorers would move from camera point and intercom point to camera point. But often the silent, you know, it's like the atmospheric reentry for NASA, you'd lose them for 10, 11, 15 minutes, and then they're back on. And they're in a place where to go and get them is, I'll tell you a very quick thing. I'll tell you how terrifying it is. My plan during the original expedition was that if someone had a critical injury, they'd broken their back, broken their leg, a pelvis, uh, an upper arm industry, injury or head injury, so that we, in, while they were in the Dinaletti chamber, in the, in the deep rising star chamber, I was going to move a doctor in in a tent that would live with them until they were healed and bring wow. them out. That's how wow. remote this place is. So absolutely freaking terrifying every moment until they got out from underground. Incredible. And it still is, by the way. Okay. So you assembled a team after that. 
to analyze all this material. And this also kind of rocked the foundation of paleoanthropology. How? I, I got to tell you again, because none of this sits as a, you know, th- these aren't eureka moments. Or they're not moments that happened in any, they didn't happen out of the context of the history. It has to do with this whole field. Uh, if you take this field, when I first entered it back in uh, 1990, 1989, actually, uh, it was a very close science. It was being run by a few men who were largely discoverers of fossils that uh, worked in Africa and a few places in Asia for early things. And it was absolutely controlled because at that time, these fossils were thought to be the rarest sought after objects on earth. And it's no exaggeration to say that as a, you know, when I was doing my PhD between 1990 and 1990, uh, early 1994, that, that there were more paleoanthropologists in the world than there were fossils that we studied. And it made it a very competitive field, mm. dominated by these almost godlike discoverers. And I don't use the, the, those words lightly because, mm-hmm. you know, if you found a mandible during that period, a jawbone, you could count on dining out and being invited as a keynote speaker to three to five conferences a year for the rest of your life. That is a scale. And to give you another scale, as I chose to come to South Africa at that time, I jumped in the field. I went out, I found a site, Gladysville, interestingly, working there as a student, found two hominid teeth, two hominid teeth that made National Geographic magazine. That's the environment. And the reason I got to paint that older picture is that that led us into the 90s and early 2000s, where the field became almost violent over these fossils, where if you were not a member of the right club, and I'm using club in a derogatory since here, mm-hmm. the, sure. old, the old boys club, and I use boys in the derogatory sense here, and, and coming mm-hmm. from the right school, then, uh, you know, you just did, never saw these things. There were laws that were pushed by scientists that were passed in places like Ethiopia that only one cast could exist in the hands of the discoverer and the original set. And you had to go through the discoverers to get access. And then you met all these barriers. And, you know, everything was built to not allow people into these clubs. And I had come from a very weird place. I became Philip Tobias's quote unquote at that time, although he had others afterwards, his last PhD student Mm -hmm. before uh, he retired. And he certainly was a member of that club. You know, he was a bona fide, one of the, the greats of this field. And so I suddenly walked into this with access, but I had not come through the traditional areas. Right. I came from Georgia. I'd initially gone to Vanderbilt under a naval scholarship and then uh, to be a lawyer of all things and hated it and flunked out of that and then ended up at Georgia Southern doing a degree in paleontology and archaeology and met Don Johansson and who invited me to Olduvai Gorge for some reason. And then that got <laughs> shut down because of fights and then I ended up with Richard Leakey on the Harvard University Kubi Four Field School, and then here in South Africa. So I'd come from a very non-traditional background mm-hmm. and, and dropped into this. And I, I'm telling you all this because it's all relevant to, I think, what we're going to talk about. Oh, for sure. The survival rate of a, a PhD student at that time to stay in this field was very, very low. And when I mean low, I would, I would suspect it was probably under about 5%. And probably I'm being super multiplying generous with that number on it, particularly if you wanted to work in the field. Came down here. Suddenly, I was made in 1996 at a very young age, the director, the chair of paleoanthropology, taking over from Philip two years out of my PhD um, and, you know, was a a bona fide member of the club and had had privileged access. I I saw all these fossils. I was the first to see, you know, I saw Artie and all these other fossils as they came in and uh, Mm -hmm. before they were even talked about. And I didn't like it. Something sat right. very bad with me. I mean, Artie is a really good example of of sort of um, the access issue, right? Because those remains were first announced, was it like nine years before they were actually published? And only a few people had access to those fossils, and you could say very little about them, even though it was directly relevant to the history and evolutionary history of our species. Can I jump in and... 
What is Artie? Very good question. Artie? Artipithecus ramidus. Professor Berger, you are the expert here. This this is from my days in paleoanthropology. As you said, the attrition rate was uh, kind of low. So Artipithecus ramidus is a fossil discovered in Ethiopia and... It was actually discovered in in the early 1990s um, based on a couple of teeth and some other remains and described as the first hominid, uh, dating to, as now that we know, four and a half to possibly over five million years in age. And it was considered the basal hominid, not necessarily on its morphology, but because it was found in the right place in the right time. Then later, it was heard... Uh, that in the early 90s, a skeleton was discovered. And you can imagine that skeleton like that is critically important to the field. If you're talking about the basal hominid, the hominid that everything else springs from. Well, that was only published, I think, in 2009. And still today, I would imagine that there are probably not more than two dozen living paleoanthropologists that have actually seen the original bones of those fossils and been able to study them. If you want to study them, you can only study casts and under supervision. Wow. Not like that infusion, is it? (laughs) No, we don't lock away our our experiments like that. Right, which is actually a really good way to sort of segue into the, the open science part of this. So, Lee, you, you assembled this team. Let's pick up the story there. So, I was assembling this team because I had experimented with open access with Sediba and it seemed to work. Everyone had told you if you shared casts or allow people access that they'd steal your discoveries. And, mm-hmm. you know, after getting three covers of science and, you know, I think it was like 14 papers in science and, you know, dozens and dozens of others, I, I pretty much had figured out after four or five years, that wasn't true. Uh, so that part of open access was a lie. It was a lie to kind of gatekeep access. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, what it always bugged me also was this idea, which was in print in our field, that you can't work on a hominid fossil unless you've already worked on a hominid fossil. Right. Well, and that sounded self-limiting to me. And it was um, sounded like you would eventually run out of people who could work on fossils. You know, it's kind of the shaker version of science, where eventually if you don't breed, you're not going to have a next generation. <laughs> and so... I decided to take the open access experiment I'd done with Sediba, which I thought was pretty successful, but I wasn't happy with everything. I still played the conventional game in the middle of it to open that up even further. And so I put a call out, again, using social media to early career scientists. I already Mm -hmm. had a core team of seasoned scientists that I sort of wrangled into this idea. And it wasn't very hard to wrangle them in, by the way. They'd all had great success (laughs) with Sadiba, but wrangled into the idea that in any other field of science, and I bet Steph would admit to this too, that, you know, usually you consider your best and brightest are your early career there. You know, if you don't have your fields medal by 30, 35, you aren't going to get one. But in our field, you know, we were we were kind of a reverse model of that. If you began looking at fossil hominids before you're 60, you're in a barrency. And it's a mm-hmm. and so I decided to turn that on its head, taking this model. And I have to also say that part of what was in my mind, you've got to remember that I was one of the first younger scientists at the time that was of the Google generation. It was my generation, I'm 56 now, that you know, we were the ones who were in the middle of the invention of companies that didn't have any, any, anything to sell, that didn't have any structure of businesses, but were the richest companies on, on earth. And the only thing they knew is because you, you know, had to give it away. I was part of the early, you know, Wikipedia. And then I was one of the breakaway citizendium with Larry Sanger, which failed miserably trying to give away information. And we didn't understand how it generated wealth or knowledge, but we just knew it did. And so I was had suddenly had, I guess, wealth in the form of this data. And so I put the calls out and had just a tremendous application, though not without criticism. You know, I mm-hmm. had several scientists, senior scientists, uh, call me up. And this isn't the ones who would naturally criticize this, but ones that were, you know, kind of allies saying, this isn't the right way to do it because you're going to end up deciding who has the next careers of the future by giving them early access to these fossils. And, you know, my answer to them was 
and that's a bad thing, <laughs> you, right. know, you know, but anyway, moving beyond that, we assembled this group through a call and selected what we thought were the best candidates with the best data sets. We laid down rules that you had to open up your data sets. You mm -hmm. know, the old rule, all of you with PhDs, you know, what'd your PhD advisor tell you if you had a PhD from before 15 years ago, your data set is what you protect. It's going to be your career mm -hmm. and that's your negotiating tool. And I was saying, no, it's not your mind and your discoveries and your intellect. And this isn't going to be the last is going to be what your contribution is. Right. Right. And so they, they opened up their data sets and we, I raised funds for a workshop. We flew everyone out here, put them together and I think produced some extraordinary papers and then turned it loose to them. Mm -hmm. We published every single fossil, every measurement, 3d shape files. We worked with Morphosaurus at Duke university to, unload and, and made the principle that we will not publish an object that we don't release all the data, which was, I guess it was a novel thing in paleoanthropology uh, right. at the time. And I liked the model. I still like the model. Did anyone at any time from the outside kind of study how this model of going at open access accelerated discoveries from this? You know, we've had? looked at that data. Uh, interestingly, things like the university has. Uh, yeah. only, only from a metrics point of view, you know, uh, I can tell you funny things like as of a, you know, pre COVID that, you know, the model around home and Aledi had generated over $1.6 billion in value of coverage, mm -hmm. the open access model, the, um, you know, it's generated reams of papers and we have all that, but no one's ever studied that science, but I can tell you that the, the, the acceleration in output. Um, has been extraordinary. And the very fact, the very fact that we are sitting here, that we announced, announced Homo Naledi in 2015. And I think that it's arguable to say it is probably the best known hominid species from a scientific point of view of any species ever, ever described, just because it's all out there. You know, that, that there are, uh, I mean, dozens, if not hundreds of papers on the thing just in that relatively short period of time. And of course, the fossils are freely available. They're in half, I, I would bet any school that has a, a bio, biology teacher interested in human evolution will have 3D prints of Homo naledi in their, in their labs because they can. I can confirm that. I, I absolutely have <laughs> 3D prints of Homo naledi stuff that I show high school students in New Hampshire and Vermont all the time. I'm so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we have him here too, although you know we have an insider track here with Andrew Dean as my colleague at the School of Medicine here. So, so of course he was part of the um, the the Rising Star group. Um, I, what did you call that group of uh, scientists that you got together after the discoveries were made? Because uh, we had the 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 uh, underground astronauts. I honestly don't remember. I didn't didn't think I really had a a name for them. I feel like there was one. I Hey, why don't you make one up right now and it'll become, uh, uh, you know, the meme name of that group. <laughs> I mean, it seems like rising stars. It's the bill, doesn't oh, it? Oh, man. <laughs> corny. Seems like it to me. That's right. Oh, for sure. Well, when have I not been corny? Uh, but yes, I can confirm as well. We use uh, Homo Naledi 3D prints all the time. We do outreach here in the greater Indianapolis area. It's important. Um, there are very few fossils, at least at the time, there were very few. There are many more now. But uh, there were very few at the time that you could reliably say, okay, this is an accurate representation of sort of what we know this fossil looked like. Otherwise, any of those casts could have been highly inaccurate. And in fact, many of them were. And in fact, many still are. And that's a real danger. Uh, most of, I, well, I think every cast that you see out of Ethiopia is a piece of art. It's not an actual, there are no casts except in the hands of the discoverers mm -hmm. online or anywhere else. They're 3D images that are accurate. And that's really important to understand. You know, you, you print out a Lucy off of Morphosaurus or any other 3D online. That's not the fossil. That's a 3D image of probably a bone clones reconstruction or another organization that has scanned that uh, a cast, or they made a model of what they thought it looked like, mm -hmm. and then they they put that model. So you have to be very careful because there are actually very very few actual three dimensional images of real fossils uh, on the web right now, except for Homo naledi and Sediba will vouch. So one of the other things that really captivated my imagination about the way you have 
designed your outreach is that you've involved high school science teachers in the dissemination of this information. How did you decide to do that? I mean, who thinks to do that? And then how did you make that operational? There were a couple of things. One is that, uh, you know, because I came from rural Georgia, and I mean, when I say rural Georgia, Screven County, uh, Georgia, there's a shout out to Sylvania, Georgia out there. You know, at, <laughs> at that time, it was like a town of 800 people. And I lived, you know, 13 miles outside uh, of that on, on a farm. But, but, you know, high school was an important moment for me. I learned some of the most important skills I ever learned in high school, like typing and programming a computer. This is back in the 80s. So that was the early 80s. So, you know, these are things that uh, they, they were teaching us to be the secretaries. And we ended up, you know, knowing, having all the knowledge of, of what the, the future was. It's a shout out to Gen X, of course. Yeah, of that's course, right. The resiliency of Gen X. I'm a huge believer in what happens in, in high school. And uh, it was very important to me. And, and so I've also always believed that the younger you can get people into science, the better. Because I think part of the problems, in particularly places like America, although I haven't lived there permanently for 30, 32 years, 33 years, is that we don't open science to young people. It's taught like the Wizard of Oz, you know, mm-hmm. something's happening behind the curtain and you're back out here in front and it's all magic, but just memorize it and regurgitate it. I've been working with the Boy Scouts. In fact, I'd gone to places, organizations like that. I had actually got contacted on Facebook by a teacher in Dallas, Texas called John Mead. who just private messaged me and said, you know, I'm in Dallas. I hear you're coming to Dallas. Would you talk to my high school class? And I said, sure. It turned out what I realized with that introduction, and then when we started bringing cast to things like the what was then the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, mm-hmm. it's now the American Association of Biological Anthropologists, was that there were tons of teachers, often who'd had PhDs in paleoanthropology, who were desperate to bring this into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I had these casts I could deliver, and you know, and it, it sort of became a natural growth. And then as we started sharing this on social media and, and we had the capacity here in Johannesburg to to go live from the field using, you know, a Wi-Fi modem. It became very natural to talk to classes as I sat and stared at people in a cave because most of the time it's like flying a plane. It's, you know, hours of boredom and seconds of terror as something happens. And, <laughs> and, uh, and we started doing that and it's been absolutely. In fact, I'm coming back to the United States next month in June. And the last stop is at the International Boys Schools Conference. It's being held in Dallas, Texas, and to deliver a whole lecture there. So I'm passionate part of my life, getting young people early into science, but into the front end of science, not after the fact discovery. Let them join us along the route. I love this. Again, today, our guest has been Professor Lee Berger from the University of Israel. This has been such an awesome conversation. We are so grateful that you came onto the podcast today. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart and just want to find out, is there anything last that you want anyone to know? Absolutely. The one thing I've learned from this entire journey is that there's more out there to discover. One of the great problems in our field that made it so possessive is that everyone thought that the discovery they made was the last one that was going to be made. But it's more like the rings, the gold rings in Tolkien. The real message of that is if something ever begins to feel like it possesses you, it's so valuable that it owns you, take it off and throw it in the nearest volcano and go find another because there's plenty there are plenty of golden rings. So never stop exploring. That's brilliant. Yeah. That was amazing. Yep. That was that's, amazing. That's the pull quote. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, Professor Berger, where can our listeners find you on social media? You can find me at Lee R. Berger on Twitter, at Prof. Lee Berger on Facebook. You can also pick me up on that uh, on LinkedIn. Um, and then you can also follow my YouTube channel, which is uh, uh, The Fossil Vault, all one word, uh, where we post uh, uh, live from the field, but also videos, but also other random things from Africa, from exploration, conservation, and natural history. The Fossil Vault.
Well, it was an absolute honor to talk to Lee Berger and proof that if you want to talk to your heroes, all you need to do is start a podcast, convince your more impressive friends to help you as a co-host, and exploit their Twitter mutuals. We have come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast. But new episodes will keep coming out all summer, so be sure you subscribe to the show now and follow us on social media so you will not miss a thing. If you want to follow me, I am at James underscore Reed 3. And Steffi, where are you? I'm on Twitter at Steffi Deem and on Instagram at Starshipin. Jason, where, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter, too, at OregonJM. Well, you should follow all of us and follow the show at Science Night 1. Visit our newly renovated home on the web at Cyanite.com, where you can find links to all our other social media accounts, past episodes, links to all the stories that we talk about, and, of course, our new line of Cone Snail merch. It is a one-stop shop to help support the show, and you can find it at Cyanite.com. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I asked Matthew, my youngest, if he wanted to come in today and listen. He's like, yeah, maybe for 10 minutes, but I don't want to listen anymore than that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs>